0: back to Real Seekers, I'm Dale, uh, The Real Seeker, and this is going to be a, another very quick episode, uh, another solo show that I'm going to be doing on, I posted it on my blog site, my free academic essay for my philosophy of emotions uh, class, where I sort of give my theory about what, what possible role do emotions play with respect to moral knowledge or moral epistemology. Um, so that's what this show is going to be, I'm just going to kind of outline what my theory theory is on that front. Um, This will probably be the last solo show for a while. Um, After this I'll I'll post up, go back to posting up old SNS archive debates that we did. I still got a couple from 2018 and then I'll get into the posting up the 2019 shows and and so on and so forth from the SNS archive. Um, But as I said I've got new new RSM or Real Seekers uh, content in the works with various special guests coming up uh, as well, I'll be, you know, spring and summertime after this semester, I'll start getting back into my cosmological argument and, and other series and stuff like that. So, yeah, I've got uh, a, a bunch of shows in the works uh, within the next few weeks or or, or that. Uh, I think the next new one that'll be a new Real Seekers podcast is on the topic of eschatology. I'll be going on with various guests on to proselytize and apostatize to discuss all things eschatology, you know, amillennialism, premillennialism, the rapture, uh, all of that fun stuff. Again, not my main area of interest, but uh, it's it's something that's important. It's definitely an important topic. It's in the Bible. It's in God's Word. So yeah it's something for me to kind of bone up on and, and get familiar with to present a case uh, on that so yeah, i look forward to that um and as i said other you know michael dr michael malona i've got dr liz jackson dr dr lydia mcgrew coming on and you know some other shows hopefully you'll get marvin on um either with andrew to discuss scientific methodology or if that doesn't happen i'll find somebody else and we can bring marvin on and, and that sort of thing to discuss science and scientism and that kind of thing so yeah um with that said let's get into this solo show on what is my thesis um for my philosophy of emotions essay here okay so as most of you guys know uh if you're a regular to uh real seekers here you'll probably know that i have my infamous answer to the famous abraham test that skeptics give and you know i was on dogma debates arguing this with david smalley uh who's as an atheist, he's one of my favorites. I really like him. He's very open-minded. He treats people with respect. So, you know, I always like uh, having David Smalley on the show or being on his show and, and speaking about these tough issues. But, um, uh, and I was also on Robert Stanley's show discussing uh, the same thing, it, it, the Abraham test and how I answer in the affirmative. Yes, I think it was morally right for Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his own son based on a commandment from a morally perfect God to do so. Um, and you guys can go and, you know, find out some shows uh, if you want to hear me defend that from an ethics perspective and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, the, you know, these types of examples aren't alone. There, there are other examples in the Bible, the, the Joshua conquests and that sort of thing from the book of Joshua, where God commands the Israelites to go and slaughter seemingly uh you know guilty people the canaanites and that sort of thing were guilty and they were very satanic people so they got what they deserved in some sense but undoubtedly there is people that there were people that were innocent there were babies there were innocent children that got caught up in that to some extent obviously it's debated how you read these and paul copan has great defenses and that sort of thing but aside from all of that god commanded people to die and god commanded that in relative from our point of view innocent people get killed and as a bible believing christian i think that we have to say yes that actually happened and yes it was moral and quite obviously that is shocking to skeptics and atheists who say that is repugnant that is very immoral you know they have this overly emotional reaction to it and this gut emotional reaction saying no that is wrong that is so immoral you should never say yes to something like that um and that's what i wanted to come to grips with so quite obviously our emotions do apply to moral situations to moral questions and they seemingly play a role in allowing atheists and skeptics to come to the view and say something is immoral especially when confronted with biblical stories and that sort of thing. Now, in the past, I've sort of been skeptical of emotions. You know, it's, it's a logical fallacy, appeal to emotions. They're notoriously unreliable and bad at giving us reliable means to access knowledge. They, they don't provide us with warrant in a lot of cases. So I've just tended to be dismissive and says it's complete, it's complete bunk. Uh, I don't care how you feel. Uh, What is it Ben Shapiro always says? uh, Facts don't care about how you feel or something like that, right? So um, that's sort of been my traditional attitude is I dismiss atheists and skeptics who just come at me with mindless emotion, quote unquote, mindless emotion. But um, after having taken this philosophy of emotions class, I've somewhat changed my mind. I I was forced to really sit down and kind of reckon with what role God designed our emotions, you know, our affective Affective, aff, uh, qu- faculties that that have and you we use to experience our emotions and that sort of thing. What you know gives us the capacity, those affective qualities of our souls, which give us the capacity to experience emotions in the first place. So our emotions are designed for a purpose. They're good. It, it's great. I mean, emotions motivate us to do things. They play a motivating role. They. Um, they make life worth living, as some people say. So, so clearly, emotions are good. And they do seem to have some natural association with moral values and moral evaluative judgments. In some capacity, they are linked to it, whether they're right or wrong, reliable or not. There is an inherent uh, prima facie uh, association. Yeah, I wanted to put aside any bias that I had as kind of like a Western analytical Know, pure logic just the facts ma'am type of thing and, and see and ask myself if there really could be a role for emotions in a moral epistemology context and co- helping us arrive at moral knowledge on some of these moral questions like the ones i, I gave from the bible there um, so in order to assess that so the, the first section of my paper is really just going to be okay let's understand what emotions are in general we have to understand what this phenomenon is and philosophers of emotions have typically focused on three fundamental aspects or issues uh, that pertain to our emotional experiences. So the first is quite obviously the phenomenology, the phenomenological aspect, you know, that raw, what it feels like to be angry, you know, that it's usually described in like, you know, like bodily sensations almost, you know. you have, your head, your head is burning and stuff like that when you're angry, or, or the utter joy of delight, what it feels like to be in joy, to be joyous or to be happy. So that's what the phenomenology is. It's that raw what it is like or what it feels like to be in an emotional state. Um, but then there's also the intentionality of emotions. So emotions, most philosophers of emotion have traditionally said, and I agree with them, that emotions are intentional meaning they are about or of something or to be less controversial they're directed directed at things in the world and just to contrast that with uh, things like moods for example moods are typically thought to be another affective faculty that we have that's not intentional it's not necessarily directed at or about any specific thing in the world but it's you know some some philosophers will say well it's about things in the world you know a general attitude or disposition toward everything in the world or the world as a whole and stuff like that and there's there's debate as to what moods are and that's outside of the scope of our thing but but yeah typically there's a contrast emotions are said to be intentional they are directed at specific things i'm angry at john i'm i'm happy with uh David J, or something like that, or you know, I'm, I'm sad at what um, I don't know Tara did, or something. You know, stuff like that. Whereas moods are not; they're more generalized. They're not aimed at specific things. They sort of color how we see everything in the world. Uh, and then finally, there's also the epistemology of emotions. How does emotions work epistemically? Does it provide us with knowledge? Stuff like that. So. Those are the three areas. Now just to go into a little bit more detail with each of these three aspects and kind of highlight some of the, the main features of each aspect that are going to be relevant for my thesis. So in the first place in terms of phenomenology um, as I said that's the raw feel what it is like to feel a given emotional state or something like that anger or sadness or happiness whatever it is so in terms of the phenomenology of emotions they tend to be automatic Um, for the most part we're passive Um, you know emotions happen to us Um, sometimes we do have the ability to induce an emotional state within ourselves by thinking about a past memory that makes us sad or a past memory that makes us happy and that sort of things but for the most part emotions are, are automatic Uh, As philosophers of emotion say and we're passive, you know, stuff happens to us and it induces an emotion and we feel anger as a result Uh, So they're not always directly subject to our will also another feature of phenomenal the phenomenology of emotions uh, They're quick. They're very quick. So they they're not burdensome in terms of drawing upon conceptual resources whereas other mental or faculties of our soul are very conceptually Uh, burdensome so to speak they draw upon many conceptual resources when I'm thinking and making logical inferences to make a deductive argument it's very intensive very conceptually conceptually resource rich so to speak whereas emotions are very little conceptions they just pop up quickly automatically and directly almost in response to uh, a bearer shows up and I'm immediately scared uh shootless (laughs) uh sorry i can't swear but um yeah i'm I'm uh, immediately terrified of the bear just in recognition of seeing that bear i I don't need to like get out draw out a pen and paper and make okay premise one big bear premise two big bears can hurt me they're scary you know stuff like that so they're they're not intense conceptually resource intensive and that sort of thing uh, another major phen- phenomenological feature that's relevant um, of emotions that's relevant for our case here is the fact that they exhibit what what is called polarity, uh, or some some philosophers of emotion call it emotional valence, in scholarly circles and uh, psychological uh, literature and that sort of thing. And you know, there, there's different ways to define this. Some, some people just say it's a straightforward hedonic perspectives so the valence of emotions in terms of that felt quality well emotions are either positive or they're negative sadness is a negative emotion Uh, happiness is a positive emotion uh, emotion that we have Um, so generally you can categorize emotions into these hedonic positive or negative classifications whether you know hey happiness Positive. I want more of happiness. I want to feel more happiness. I want less sadness. I want less anger, jealousy. Um, So those are um, one of the the ways that uh, philosophers of emotion highlight emotional valence or the polarity of emotion. And I wanted to highlight this hedonic aspect that's going to be relevant for my thesis later on now in terms of uh intentionality so just the shift focus away from the phenomenological features of emotion so i mentioned that okay so emotions are intentional they're about things or directed at things in the world and my prof made a note uh, that he's that is absolutely correct that well there's a little bit more to it than that i'm i was just highlighting out this particular aspect because it's going to be relevant for my thesis but yeah there, there's more to intentionality so, so a lot of philosophers think that emotions don't just they're not just object tracking in the sense of okay I'm, I'm tracking a bear I'm scared of that bear um, but they, they also serve as representations of or about um, certain evaluative judgments um, so you know the emotion of fear represents fearsomeness um, so it has this kind of abstract quality to it, that it's about fierce, fearsomeness, and that's being attra- attributed to the bear. So, so there's that aspect to it. I, didn't, I don't need to get into that, into that stuff. Yeah, so it's, basically, I, for my thesis, I didn't need to get into those kind of in-depth conversations. All that matters for me is, look, they're, they're, they are directed or intentional towards objects in the world. Uh, like a bear or as we'll find out um, perhaps towards moral values and stuff like that Um, there has to be some kind of grounding for the emotion that serves as the basis uh, for it you know what what it's directed towards what another aspect with the intentionality of emotions is the uh, wide intentional scope that can be uh, exhibited so emotions can be directed towards various types of objects and often simultaneously so you know we have a very rich capacity for emotions we, we can feel emotions towards bears or uh, sharks or my birthday cake or something like that so physical objects in the world but also abstract objects I, I experience emotions in relation to thoughts about it, imagining uh, a birthday party that makes me happy or that I can have an emotion based on a memory of something that happened in the past that I remember fondly or perhaps not so fondly I don't I don't experience nostalgia um, you know that this hor that emo- that past memory horrifies me and causes me to be angry or upset or something like that so the, the key here is that emotions uh, can derive from various types of cognitive what are called cognitive bases So a cognitive base, emotions are always dependent upon a cognitive base. They can't exist without being attached or deriving from uh, information that's provided by some kind of cognitive base. Or our happiness is dependent upon the information of our cognitive base, which might be a memory, a a happy memory that we have. The memory would be the cognitive base here. Or a thought, the thought of... a thought of a a bear or something the thought of a snake let's say some people are are, have phobias of snakes well the thought would be the cognitive base and that would cause you to be afraid or there could be something that's actually directly in the in the world you're observing through your sense your senses you're seeing a, a scary bear a bear coming at you and that causes you to be afraid so in this case the sense data would be the cognitive base that your emotions are dependent on or deriving from Uh, so hopefully that that makes sense i think i've explained that pretty good Um, now finally in terms of the moral epistemology and the intimate intimate connection between emotions and evaluative judgments and i kind of hinted that there is this link with moral evaluative judgments specifically as well Uh, not just evaluative judgments of all types you know we we make um, our emotions apply to judgments about beauty evaluations of what is beautiful versus ugly and stuff like that as well but for the purposes of our paper you know there there is this link and all philosophers recognize this link between emotions and evaluative judgments and that includes moral evaluative judgments now believe it or not at one time this sort of leads into what is the structure of emotions what what are they? And I didn't include this in my essay much except to at one time the predominant view as to what what are emotions? What type of mental entity or, or uh, faculty are they? And the predominant view for a long time was what was called judgmentalism. So that's the view that look emotions just are evaluative judgments. That's what emotions are. There's some kind of sui generis evaluative judgment of some type um, so they're identical you know that the you make this propositional evaluative judgment or belief and it manifests as this emotion the emotion is the evaluative judgment or belief itself and this is a view called judgmentalism it was the predominant view it's totally fallen out of fashion since i think since the early 80s and that sort of thing or or 70s perhaps but the main reason for the the collapse of this and um i'm not going to go into too much detail when i bring on michael malona he'll he'll give uh, i'm going to be asking him to kind of outline what are some of the major views of what emotions are structurally because i i found that fascinating as to all the different ideas as to what type of entity of uh, uh, what type of faculty emotions might happen to be but um right now just so you know yeah so there's perceptualism so this is the idea that emotions are perceptions of evaluative values um, so again there's that link and this this was the predominant view for a long time up until very recently it's just starting to fall out of fashion but um, my professor Mike Malone he, he's a perceptualist when it comes to emotions and you'll notice in my sources with my essay originally I was kind of attracted to the perceptualist understanding of emotions that emotions just are perceptions of value uh or perceptions of an evaluative judgment that we make um an evaluative property being in something and we just directly see it and you know obviously i could i was going to link that to like uh will elvin plantinga and william alston uh his notion of having super warrant from just perceiving god through what he calls m beliefs um where we just perceive directly god is doing this for me god is doing that for me and um there's kind of a link with this and those are super warranted it's it's in the same way you just get warrant automatically by directly seeing something perceptualism entails that hey we our emotions are us just seeing in a special sense in the form of emotions, seeing these evaluated properties in the world. We see someone robbing a bank and we just automatically see that's evil, that's immoral, that's wrong. Um, So that's a a mainstream view. It's falling out of, there's problems with that. I'll save that for when my prof comes on. But uh, just one quick note, there's also the notion of attitudinalism. And this is the view that I've sort of settled on myself. So this is the view that says that emotions are attitudes. They are dispositions towards a certain certain thing and preempt a reaction or a, a response of some sort toward the the thing that we're uh we're forming this attitude towards so yeah without getting into the details um i had to kind of rework my essay so i i went from being a perceptualist leaning towards perceptualism to be towards attitudinalism and obviously, Deanna and T- Taroni, who I reference in my paper, they're attitudinalists. I, I've been convinced by them. I differ with them because they link the attitudes as being equivalent to bodily sensations. You know, that's kind of like a physicalist understanding. I think emotions are independent of the body. They're in the soul and that sort of thing. So I would disagree with them. But I agree with them generally that emotions, what they are, they're, they're attitudes, special kinds of attitudes or dispositions towards something that it, whatever they're directed towards and that sort of thing. But yeah, the, the main point here that I wanted to get to in terms of the epistemology of emotions and judgmentalism, that old view that sees that emotions uh, are just identical to our evaluative judgments is the problem of emotional or calcitrance. And this is really what led to the, the almost total abandonment of the theory of judgmentalism. And it's because, well, look, I can make an evaluative judgment that something's right or wrong, but I'm still I'm still experiencing a contradictory emotion. My emotions are contradicting my logical evaluative judgments on a given moral thing or my evaluative belief about something like that. And this is called emotional recalcitrance. And it's this issue um, that really led to the collapse of judgmentalism and as well, It's this issue of emotional recalcitrance that's going to be relevant to my theory of how do emotions operate in terms of moral epistemology. Because obviously it's a common thing. Our emotions often contradict our moral knowledge, our moral evaluative judgments in certain cases. Um, So that's an aspect that we need to be aware of. All right, cool. Um, So moving on to the next section of the paper. This is taking a little bit longer. So... The next section is just a general section on meta-ethics and the nature of moral truths. Okay, great. Now we know what emotions are and and some of the main aspects or features uh, of emotions that I'm saying are going to be relevant to my main thesis. What the heck are moral truths then? If, If we're using our emotions to gain moral knowledge, that means I must be gaining knowledge of certain moral truths. And what are those? And this is going to be no surprise to you guys. I did this with Val in, in our show on moral ontology. But, um, yep, I take a cognitivist perspective of emo- on moral truths. So moral truths are indicative statements. They are either true or they are either false. So that, you know, that I'm, I don't go for non, a non-cognitivist perspective on moral truths in the form of moral values, principles, or duties and that sort of thing another thing is that you know they have these various features and that sort of thing so they are uh prescriptive they provide prescriptive imperatives and they're objective or or logically necessary they exist independent of any human beings in or, or cultures opinions or beliefs or desires about certain moral truths you know these moral truths are universalizable they're all grounded in god Uh, God's nature defines what these moral truths are and they're objective they're objective you're either objectively right or wrong if you steal a watch So yeah, I I don't think I need to go over that stuff too much. You guys already know my opinion on that I'm a deontologist. So I think that there are moral rules or principles that exist grounded in God's nature as well I'm a virtue ethicist, but the deontology part is what's relevant for a thesis here um, so there are these higher moral values or principles: a principle of justice, a principle of truth preservation, uh, a principle of life preservation. You know, we we have a duty to maintain and preserve life to the best that we can. And these, all of our m- lower moral duties. That I I shouldn't kill John. I shouldn't. I should kill a Nazi in the context of World War II. I shouldn't kill. Uh, my wife just to get the insurance or something like that all of these lower duties derive from these higher moral values and principles in this case the principle of life preservation and it's important to note that these moral principles are not are not uh they're they're exemption they're not exemptionless meaning that there are exemptions to them right so as we said sometimes it's good it's the right thing to do to kill someone such as a Nazi in World War II and the moral principle itself of life preservation still makes itself felt but there's a justified morally justified exemption to it in the context of World War II you're fighting a just war and you've got to take out the evil bad satanic bad guys um, from doing what they they want to do uh, and that sort of thing so that's a major thing, is understand there are exemptions, and this is going to be critically important for my theory of how moral emotions relate to moral knowledge. Okay, so with that said, let's get into what what is my thesis? What is the role that emotions play in terms of moral epistemology? And on this front, I've really liked the brilliant insight from the philosopher Andrus uh, and I've linked to his free academic paper you guys can take a look at that and scan it for yourselves on my blog site but yeah i think he's really laid out a persuasive case that what emotions are within the context of moral epistemology they function as sui generis effective availability heuristics so they are moral heuristics that's what they do with respect to moral values or other value you know as says other all normative or evaluated values but in our context with respect to moral values specifically. So yeah, so so with that said, okay, great. So so emotions are moral heuristics. What the heck is that? Well, heuristics are basically, they're, they're essentially epistemic procedures. Uh, they generate fast and frugal. Remember in section one, we said emotions are fast, they're quick, they're automatic. They they're, They don't require a lot of conceptual resources and that sort of thing. So they're fast and frugal. Heuristics are fast and frugal reasons that we have for our factual or evaluative beliefs. And the way they work is they work by substituting out a target attribute for a heuristic attribute. Uh, namely, a, a heuristic attribute is, is it's an attribute that it's easier to process when time and information are scarce. You don't have the time to sit down and calculate out all the math and that and reach the target attribute. Uh, So you just substitute in this quick and easy heuristic attribute instead. Um, So Zigeti he he basically defines heuristics as, quote-unquote, mental shortcuts or rules of thumb. We are dealing with a heuristic whenever a difficult question is answered by substituting an answer to an easier one. Um, So we get an easy answer to something else, not necessarily the original target that we were looking for. So... That's what a heuristic is, and that's what we're claiming emotions serve as. They're they're ways that we get quick moral knowledge when time and information are scarce, and we're just confronted with a situation, and we we have to make an immediate judgment, or we don't have a, you know, for whatever reason, we we lack a properly basic belief that something is moral or immoral in, in some case, then we can rely on our emotion as a heuristic to say, is this right or not? Well, how do I feel? I feel angry about this guy's reaching into my pocket and taking my wallet that's immoral or that's wrong or or something like that Um, so that's how I think emotions function in terms of giving us moral knowledge so why would we think that emotions are in fact moral heuristics in the first place and as I said in the first place we have an argument by reasoning through analogy right emotions are fast they're automatic uh they're frugal they don't draw upon a lot of conceptual resources and that sort of thing, well, that's just like a heuristic. Emotions and heuristics are analogous in that sense. Um, Going beyond the argument from analogy, Z. Yeti really hammers it home and lays out a powerful empirical case based on modern uh, empirical evidence as well as uh, experimental psychology uh, in recent cases that equates emotions as functioning as moral heuristics. So for example, it's been in experimental psychology, it's been proven and demonstrated that people's views on the appropriate severity of punishment for some kind of moral wrongdoing is governed by the so-called outrage heuristic. Uh, and that's what people kind of, um, and that's emotional, right? This emotional outrage that they feel, they use that as a heuristic to say, give him 20 lashes, uh, kill that SOB, um, lock him up and throw away the key and stuff like that. So this has been shown in experimental psychology that we use our emotions as a moral heuristic when ascribing What kind of what the severity of punishment should be, depending on someone's crimes, um, or depending on the "quote unquote" felt outrageousness of the act, and you know it's it's also plausible to assume this this happens. Psychologists think this happens in other things, so the shame heuristic or the blame heuristic, as it's called, right? The amount of shame or blame you feel um, impacts on how people see them or make judgments about the shamefulness or moral blameworthiness of a certain action. So it's it's quite clearly empirically proven that emotions are serving as this moral heuristic. For better or worse, it's playing this role. Another thing um, that may be controversial, but Zighetti appeals to it is scientific evidence from evolutionary origins and the accounts of the adaptive value of emotions. Um, you know they, they provide scientists will say that emotions quote unquote provide quick and ready salient evaluative cues in standard situations and i I'm highlighting standard situations that's going to be relevant to my thesis uh, so it plays this moral heuristic role in standard situations when there is no time or no perceived need to undertake a more detailed cognitive assessment and this, uh, coheres with evolutionary accounts right where it converges with a uh, heuristics model as to what emotions both can do for us in evolutionary history but it also matches up more importantly with what we know emotions can't do for us as well so so yeah the the evidence showing that the phylogenetic history has kind of hardwired basic emotional propensities into humans um, this also serves as evidence that emotions are in fact heuristics And function as moral heuristics as well. So there's actually been scientific investigation into emotions um, being hardwired into humans, at least with the basic emotions. There are certain complicated ones, more controversial, but yeah, there's been... Studies uh, under a view of emotions called neo Jamesianism or Jamesianism. This is kind of what you atheists and skeptics would really like as physicalists. But um, yeah, there's been studies uh, going back to the 1800s and more recently, uh, you know, with um, Levinson, Ekman, and Friesen back in 1991. They kind of systematically studied the autonomic changes. That were associated with um, Ekman and Friesman's earlier study back in 1971 of these six basic emotions anger, disgust, fear, joy, sadness, and surprise. And basically, they found in that study that uh, each of these emotions corresponds to a precise, unique body pattern. Um, so, this is kind of some of the scientific evidence that I'm talking about here. Um, where it's it's been sort of observed that the there is this correspondence. It's also been observed that the principal brain structures underlying our emotional states, they've all been independently associated with those bodily responses. And this was from a study by Damasio in 2000. Um, so so yeah, the, these um, these types of facts or correspondences kind of le- lend credence to the fact of the, this evolutionary argument that yeah emotions at least, at the very least, the basic ones without getting into the issues of complicated emotions or compound emotions, um, they're, they're hardwired into the brain, either through evolution or from some kind of God-designed process, um, but yeah, it, it's hardwired into us and expresses itself physically in certain bodily autonomous or unique bodily expressions as well as unique brain activity. Um, so that that's not controversial, regardless of your take on evolution. But yeah, there is that scientific evidence that supports the thesis here. Okay, so having having established through Zigeti's reasoning that motions are in fact number one they're heuristics, and number two they also f- function as moral heuristics specifically. How do we what How do we establish what my plausible theory is as to how the certain it works when we get moral knowledge through them? Well, my notion is that if you remember moral truths, uh, in section two, we said there are two basic types of moral truths. There are the higher moral values and principles, things like the principle of justice, principle of truth, and that sort of thing. Uh, And then there are the derivative, lower moral duties that derive from those moral values and principles. Um, You know, like to kill or not kill this specific person, or to lie or not lie in this specific situation, or to uh you know whatever it is a sacrifice to god or something like that every wednesday or something i think that our emotions apply only to moral values and and this makes sense so we'll i'll get into this a little bit later but think about it yeah moral emotions just are attitudes of eval of values of evaluative properties or judgments or whatever it is so yeah, that makes sense, that they apply to these higher moral values and principles. They don't apply to moral duties, um, at least not principally, when they're serving in the role as a moral heuristic or the primary source of moral knowledge in certain cases. Uh, and It's important to note that emotions also play other roles, where they're not the primary source of moral knowledge. You know, emotions apply when I when I get moral knowledge through properly basic beliefs in a regular way or... Uh, through my moral conscience or through logic and that sort of thing so so emotions aren't just strictly these moral heuristics but what i'm saying is i think when emotions give us actual moral knowledge and, and serve as the primary source of that moral knowledge then that means that they're they are serving as moral heuristics in those cases so i'm not concerned with other roles that emotions have in moral situations because you know in those contexts something else logic or my cognitive faculties are serving as my way of gaining more primary source for moral knowledge in those cases emotions in those cases are just add-ons they're supplementary they don't contribute to moral knowledge per se but they maybe they motivate us or they attract our attention towards our moral knowledge or motivate behavior or something like that they have other roles but with specifically to moral knowledge it's it's when they're uh they are the primary source of moral knowledge when serving as moral heuristics when there's not time or the necessary cognitive resources available to make a proper moral judgment on something and they apply to the at the level of these moral values and principles do those moral values principles apply or not apply to a given moral situation that we're observing and i think that they also can tell us through the polarity of emotions remember that emotional valence is it a positive emotion or a negative emotion and through that we can tell well has the moral ideal been violated or not um, and that the if you remember when we covered in section 2 exemptions morally justified exemptions to universalizable moral principles there are sometimes justified exemptions to the moral principles so the moral ideal is preserving equally all moral values and principles in every situation totally, no, br- nothing wrong or something like that. We do something immoral when we breach or violate a moral value or principle. That's what it means for something to be immoral, given my moral ontology uh, that I outlined in section two of my paper. However, uh, we not everything that seems to violate a moral principle is an actual violation and therefore immoral because sometimes there are situations in our fallen world where moral conflicts take place we come across complex non-standards moral situations or dilemmas or quandaries where two or more moral principles conflict with each other and we have to do the best we can we have to lie to save a life and you know choose to do the lesser of two evils and this sort of thing. And on that basis, our emotions can't tell us in complicated moral situations or moral dilemmas in this sort of thing, if something's truly moral or immoral. It doesn't speak to the violation or actual violation or non-violation of a moral principle or value. It can only speak to is the situation morally ideal or not ideal in the sense that are there moral principles that apply and does it seem like there's a a violation there's an apparent violation they're not all being all the moral principles aren't being upheld equally at least one or more of those moral principles in conflict have had to have been exempted and that's what we're feeling emotionally we're not gaining knowledge necessarily that something immoral that a violation of a moral principle has taken place but we are getting our emotions are telling us that one or more moral principle two or more moral principles apply and are conflicting and that something bad is bad is taking place in the sense that the moral ideal the upholding of all moral principles and values equally being upheld equally has not taken place or if we have a positive emotion to moral situation, then yeah, the, the moral ideal is taking place, and in that case, you can say yes, nothing immoral is taking place in, in that sense. So that's what I, that's what I think um, the emotions serve as, and how the polarity or valence of emotions helps us determine whether some the moral ideal has been upheld or not. Now, one thing I, I should mention here, so it, it's our moral consciences, not our emotions or affective faculties that track the moral values proper and they produce. Um, so our moral consciences, sometimes they produce just an immediate, properly basic, full on evaluative judgment or belief. Uh, no need for the emotions and we just know you are immoral, you are good, you are bad uh, and we can know in that way. But. Sometimes, because we live in a fallen world, for whatever reason, we, can't, we don't have the time or re- cognitive resources available, or other resources available, that are sufficient for us to make a proper moral evaluative judgment. Likewise, our moral conscience might be affected for some reason, and prohibit us from forming a, a properly basic belief about the immorality or morality of a moral, complex moral situation and in that case we have our emotions to rely on as moral heuristics so what's happening here is our moral consciences encounter a more complex moral situation and i think they form a what's called a value intuition rather than a value judgment and this this is what you know a a value judgment would be where we have a full-on properly basic belief you don't need your emotions you just know whether it's true or false in a propositional sense of and and you have your ju- your full on judgment but sometimes due to the effects of sin our moral consciences misfire and we don't have the proper time or resources available to sit down and think it out rationally or uh, just having a quick sort of rethink uh, even if uh, forget about the effects of sin what what were the original intent of emotions anyways did they ever play a role with moral knowledge so maybe emotions were supplemental even Without the effects of sin, uh, maybe at times we're not fully cognizant, we're not fully paying attention to a moral situation in a way that we would consciously be aware and have our moral consciences produce a full-on morally properly basic evaluative belief uh, about a moral situation based on the evaluative properties um, in that moral situation, in which case God has designed that supplementary system of the emotions serving as the primary source of moral knowledge. and. Uh, We have a value, our moral consciences, a form of vague value intuition, prompting, activating our emotions to respond to that value intuition as its cognitive base, thereby focusing our attention to the situation and crystallizing that value intuition into a full-fledged value judgment of some sort. Um, So that, yeah, even uh, my my thesis about the role of emotions could apply even in, in a morally perfect world, it, um, it, it, they don't just have to come in because of the effects of sin that prevents our moral consciences from producing a properly basic belief. Maybe due to lack of attention or cognizance on our part, our moral consciences uh, may only produce a value intuition as opposed to a value, full-on value judgment or propositional belief uh, in, in terms of the morality or immorality of the situation directly. And so we have another, God has provided us with another way to arrive at moral knowledge through our emotions. And what happens in these cases is our moral consciences respond to a situation by having what philosophers call a value intuition rather than a value judgment or value properly basic belief. Um, You know, or a properly basic belief of an evaluative variety or something like that. The value intuition is kind of like a half-baked, something We're semi-conscious, you know, we're kind of aroused in that, but aroused in terms of knowing that something's going on morally, but we, we don't have like a full cognizant or cognitive awareness, something moral versus immoral is happening here and that sort of thing. So our emotions kick in and respond to these value intuitions that our moral consciences produce. And it's our emotions that serve to focus our attention on that value intuition through the emotional uh, valence or polarity. We know something is good or bad. The moral ideal is upheld or not being upheld here. So there's some kind of moral principle that applies and it's good or bad um, in this complex moral situation or even simplistic moral situation. And that in turn allows us to form a full on properly basic belief of an evaluative measure and or uh produce uh, you know not a properly based belief but a, an evaluative belief about the immorality or immorality through sitting down and reasoning it out with logically deductive or inductive reasoning you know once we get the time and, and the resources so you know uh, we can form a, a full-on make a logical inference or something to come to a moral, proper, full-fledged moral belief that we're cognizant of and, and act upon. So, yeah, either way, either when our attention is focused, we get we get a full-fledged, properly-based belief, or we don't get that, and it forces us to act immediately on this heuristic attribute or heuristical knowledge, uh, and then after the fact, we may reflect on what happens, and, and engage in a logical reasoning to work out what well, was that moral or immoral or not and then form a full moral belief after the fact either either way uh the emotions are that important first step and that primary source for gaining that moral knowledge so it's kind of like a safety net um as well as the motivational and as well as motivating action and and stuff like that but um Yeah, sometimes our moral consciences misfire and they can only produce a value intuition. And it's at that point that our emotions use that as their cognitive base, as we mentioned in section one, um, to focus our attention and and thereby create a a full on evaluative judgment um, on a heuristic attribute. You know, um, I feel bad, therefore something is wrong here. Uh, I feel good, okay, everything's moral, this, this situation is good, or, or something like that. And then puts us into a state of moral action readiness. How do I respond to it? So, th- so that's, in a nutshell, how the process works, and it's the limit, my proposed limitations. Emotions uh, operate on value intuitions that apply to the moral, whether or not the moral ideal is being upheld or not it doesn't apply to the specific morality or immorality is there an actual violation of a moral principle that takes place in the situation or not and this especially gets complicated when we're dealing with complex moral situations versus simplistic moral situations so with simplistic moral situations where there's only one moral principle at play then yeah you can tell is something moral or immoral based on how you feel because if you feel bad, well that just mean, that means the moral ideal isn't at play, since there's only one principle at play, there are no exemptions, immorality is taking place. Something immoral happened. And possibly with simplistic ones, you know, you lie to save a life. Um, there are two or more things, moral principles conflicting, but it may be possible that our, our emotions do unreliably get the th- situation right and we are able to say it's immoral or something like that. But Um, I'm going to be arguing that it's just unreliable in any complicated moral situation where two or more moral principles conflict with each other. That's the limit. I I think they speak to moral idealness, not immorality versus morality. I've said that a million times, so I I think you guys get what my proposal is and the limits there. And as I said, hopefully you guys get the two uh, two senses in which a situation can be not morally ideal. There's the non morally ideal situation. Morally, I moral idealness again, it's all moral principles are equally upheld. Ab unqualified absolutism, as Immanuel Kant argued for it. We live in a fallen world that is impossible to happen or to ever take place. We always get into situations where there's moral conflict within the moral hierarchy, it's unavoidable in this sin diseased or sin cursed world that we live in post the fall Um, so there are two types of situations that are not morally ideal situations where we would have bad emotions or negative emotions towards a situation a moral situation the first is where the moral ideal is not being upheld um, but nothing immoral has taken place there's been no violation of a moral principle And that takes place because there are moral, there is a justified moral exemption that takes place. So for example, lying to save a life. Well, doesn't that violate the principle of truth? No, because there's a justified moral exemption to the principle of truth in the context of trying to save a life and uphold the principle of life preservation. However, there are other times where there's an actual violation of a moral principle. And this is where we would say, well, that's immorals. What the situation that's obtained is immoral. It should not have happened. Um, so that those are the two types of situations where we might feel a negative emotion to something because the moral ideal is not obtaining. Now, just to reinforce, going back to Sighetti, he there's been empirical proof that this is the case. Um, we actually know from our track record of, of studying emotions and how they operate in moral context that... Emotions are really good as heuristics in standard situations because they swap out that heuristic attribute uh, like outrage, the outrage heurist, how outraged am I or something like that or how much blame do I assign or shame or whatever for the target attribute. Is it actually you know, a violation or not? And my theory is that the, it, the heuristic attribute is that moral idealness that I spoke of we're swapping out when time and resources are scarce instead of asking adjudicating on the target attribute is this situation immoral or moral is there an actual violation of a moral principle or not we're swat we don't have time to deal with that so we're swapping that out and putting in the heuristic attribute of is this situation morally ideal or not um and and that's where sometimes you get into confusion. It's not nuanced enough to deal with complex moral dilemmas in terms of speaking of immorality versus morality proper. And this has been documented. You know, our, our Zaghetti in his paper even mentions, yes, emotions and heuristics function well with standard, basic, standard moral situations, but they're totally inadequate when confronted by heart what he calls quote-unquote hard cases and by that he's bringing up moral dilemmas where two or more moral principles conflict uh and this has been documented this is empirically proven to be the case uh we just check out our emotions and we see does it pan out or not and zighetti uses the famous sophie's choice so this one's for you tara i know you're going to love sophie's choice you always bring up this particular hard moral dilemma where a Nazi soldier, soldier goes up to Sophie, says, "Guess what? You've got to choose. You got two little kitties with you. One of them's dead. You choose which one it's going to be, and the uh, the other one will get to live. If you don't choose any of them, both of them will be killed." Uh, Sophie starts crying and, "Oh my gosh, I've got to pick one and stuff like that." And she's got this choice, this moral dilemma. Either way, you know, and she so she chooses a kid the Nazi shoots the kid and she goes off with the one that survived whatever their basis. now Sophie would very probably be feeling guilty the emotion of guilt and emotion moral guilt I I can't believe my choice led to the death of my kid I feel horrible I feel so guilty that I made that choice leading to the you know the principle of life preservation was not upheld but yet logically she knows she's not guilty she there was nothing she could do she had to choose the lesser of two evils as best she could in that situation else an even worse situation would come about both of her kids would die she's not morally blameworthy at all she her choice was not immoral but yet she still feels emotionally guilty and this there is that emotional recalcitrance remember our evaluative judgments contradict our emotions that we feel or sorry the emotion other way around our emotions contradict the evaluative judgments that we make logically um, in this case Sophie is feeling guilty even though she knows she did nothing immoral her choice wasn't immoral um, so what is happening here why is there that emotional recalcitrance as philosophers of emotion call it and this is what this is where my explanation makes sense of the situation because I think that Sophie is feeling guilty because she has a negative emotion based on the fact that the moral ideal has not been upheld. The principle of life preservation has not been upheld for both equally for both of her kids, something bad has happened. But by the same token, Sophie didn't do anything immoral. She shouldn't be feeling guilty towards her actions. She didn't violate the moral principle of life preservation because there was a justified moral exemption to the principle. Uh, namely she was doing the lesser of two evils she she would have violated the principle of life preservation times two both her kids dead had she not made the choice she did and and uh led to the death of just one of her kids and another one surviving um so she did the lesser of two evils and that wasn't immoral on her part obviously the nazi was immoral and stuff but that that's not what her emotion of guilt is applying to guilt is applying to her choice she thinks her choice she's guilty about the choice she made and but yet she didn't do anything immoral and that's because that fits my thesis that well it's because our emotions are tracked onto or intentional about uh moral idealness of a situation not uh necessarily the immorality versus morality of a situation in terms of was a, a moral principle actually violated uh, in what happened or not? You might ask, uh, why should we think that this proposal is true? Um, well, in the first place, as we've seen, emotions, all philosophers of emotion, recognize that emotions have some relation to higher values and evaluative judgments or evaluative beliefs and that sort of thing. So there is this close, intimate connection between values and emotion. So, this is why, of course, it would apply to moral values and principles rather than lower moral duties that derive from those moral values. But you might ask, well, okay, why limit the scope of emotions to moral the question of moral idealness versus non-idealness as opposed to you know immorality versus morality proper, you know, adjudicating whether an actual violation of a moral principle, has taken place or not? Um, well, in this respect, uh, I go to to establish the plausibility. I appeal to Christian theism, which posits that Adam and Eve were created in what theologians call that quote-unquote state of integrity in the Garden of Eden. Uh, once again, a quick note: um, as people who listen to my crazy show, um, I you don't have to take the, all the details of Genesis literally. It is I think it's most probably the mytho-historical genre meaning that Adam and Eve were historical, their fall was historical, they were in a state of integrity and and created imperfection, and they chose to sin and disobey God in some form, leading to our fallen world. I think that's historical, but other aspects are mythical or symbolic. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, whether they ate a fruit, the snake, and that sort of thing. If you disagree and think it's all historical, great, grand, and groovy, whatever whatever works for you, I'm happy either way adam and eve were in this state of integrity and this is why i think uh this provides some plausibility or evidence as to why christians should think that our emotions only apply to the question of moral idealness versus it non-idealness because human beings in the state of integrity weren't created or meant to be privy to complex moral dilemmas or situations um we were meant to be in a state of unqualified moral absolutism, like what Immanuel Kant envisions. You know, perfection entails we can uphold all the moral principles perfectly equally without ever violating or having to exempt any moral principles. We would never even encounter a situation where two or more moral principles would conflict in the first place. Now, obviously, through... Adam and Eve's sin—we entered the fallen world, the state of corruption, where we encounter inevitably encounter moral conflicting moral principles and values all the time, and it's unavoidable. Um, but given that God designed our emotions for the state of integrity, it's perfectly plausible that yeah, that that's beyond their design capacity to speak about, you know, moral conflicts or. The immorality versus morality of a of a moral principle, in terms of principles being violated or not, um, there was never supposed to be any violations. Uh, they were never meant designed with that focus in in, in mind. Um, you know, it was it was always moral. The, put it this way: more knowing whether something was morally ideal or not was sufficient within the state of integrity. That's all they needed to know. They're, they would never encounter. A complex moral dilemma with conflicting moral principles so they would just know is this good or bad based on how i feel do i feel good about this or do i feel bad about this therefore it's not morally ideal therefore this is the immoral thing to do all the situations would have been simplistic moral situations for them in that state um but that's not the case today so uh, you know we're overextending our af- affective emotional Faculties by trying to apply it to the question of, well, is, is this moral or immoral in a moral conflict that we find ourselves in this sin ridden world that we're in right now? Um, so that provides some measure of evidence for p- biblical evidence as to the plausibility of my thesis if you're a Christian um, and what I think a proper Christian perspective should entail given the biblical data. Um, We also have the reasons from Immanuel Kant, that Immanuel Kant argues in favor of this state of, he argues for unqualified moral absolutism. So if you're, I think that he has some good and genuine insights, but it's just, it falls apart because Immanuel Kant mistakenly used those arguments and applied this state of unqualified moral absolutism to the real world. And that's just, uh, sorry to the fallen world and that's just unrealistic we know you you can't avoid sinning i mean sometimes you have to lie to save life and that sort of thing but i i still think that Immanuel kant had some valid insights about this unqualified moral absolutism um he just misapplied it. it it shouldn't be this doesn't apply in the sin in the fallen world it applied to the state of integrity that we used to be in with adam and eve prior to the fall and that uh, all saved Christians and saved human beings will be in, again, in the state of salvation at the end of the world. Um, that, again, then can't unqualified moral absolutism will be true. So so yeah, we have this biblical warrant. We also have the warrant that Immanuel Kant provides for his notion of unqualified moral absolutism and the arguments he gave. Uh, I just think that Kant got it wrong because he misapplied that to the fallen world where we know his notion is just ridiculous and and impossible to be true Um, but he had valid insights he just didn't know it he was referring to this state of integrity or or the end state of salvation where we will be able to have an unqualified moral absolutism so I, I got a very interesting objection from my prof when I was discussing my ideas here on this front in terms of emotions and their function as moral heuristics and one of the things he wanted me to include in my essay was kind of the objection of okay but what what about the fact that there is virtue you know going back to virtue ethics and people develop morally virtuous characters through their moral experiences as they grow and learn and age um, isn't there this possibility for moral refinement emotional moral refinement where you know your model is very simplistic and you know you forget the fact that over time humans undergo emotional development they they gain more emotional depth and understanding of situations their their emotional experiences and their emotions um, grow more refined uh, more nuanced to situations as we grow and learn things about the world so you know the the prof someone might ask well isn't it possible to argue that one might be able to hone their moral character to the point emotional mor- moral character to the point where they're so virtuous uh, and they they've gained such a depth in terms of their emotional capacities maybe they can um, develop the ability to go beyond uh, the original design plan for our emotions and cultivate emotions that are able to speak beyond just the moral idealness versus non-idealness would speak to is this moral or immoral even in complex moral situations where two or more uh, moral principles conflict isn't this a, a possibility and so i just wanted to, to address this so so in the first place um it has to be totally agreed absolutely i concur that emotional and moral refinement both can and does happen in this world all the time you know oftentimes we've we there's a situation where we might feel anger towards a criminal who's stolen our wallets um, but then later on down the line we, we learn about his situation you know he was poor he was starving to death and he had to feed his kids or something so we gain new emotions we, we feel sympathy or sadness towards the criminal who stole our wallets and uh, that sheds new light on the moral situation of him stealing our wallets and that sort of thing so we refine or develop our emotional reactions uh, on this moral front and it, it can change our moral knowledge you know I was it wrong or not and that sort of thing so in the first place with with respect to this moral refinement issue I I, it'll never change um, the fact of our, in, our initial moral emotional moral reactions or knowledge gained through our emotions serving as moral heuristics will never change regardless of any new information that we may learn or further development. So it it is always right that we will feel anger towards a criminal stealing our wallets. That was wrong. That was not morally ideal. Regardless of him starving or not, he stole my hard-earned money and that is a bad situation. It's not morally ideal um, that my wallet should be stolen just to feed a family that's starving to death we shouldn't be in a world where anyone is starving to death to begin with, let alone one where my hard earned money has to be taken in order to wreck, you know, wreck someone, try to rectify that that unfortunate situation. So my original feeling of anger is correct. I I should be angry. It was not morally ideal what happened, but what I think is happening with these emotional moral refinements, as we gain new information and insights into the situation, we gain other emotions that speak to those specific new aspects that we've learned you know it's correct to feel sad that uh that uh the the criminal's family is starving to death that's not morally ideal either so it's it you're just gaining it's only ever going to be additive you're never going to get a contradictory thing that negates the former reaction um uh, uh, the former emotion that you experienced if you're focusing on the aspect isolated aspect of your wallet was take your hard-earned money was taken from you that you were absolutely right that is something to be angry about that particular aspect of the moral situation you should be angry about um, but it's just we gain knowledge that adds other emotions and more nuance and, and kind of colors um the situation for us so that's what i think is really happening to us um in terms of moral refinement and gaining new information and gaining new perspective as we grow and mature to recognize the fullness of a of any given moral situation and everything that's at play uh including learning what other moral principles were involved or at play in this in this type of thing right that that's how we gain knowledge of moral exemptions and and that and that sort of thing and, and realize what it well was the criminal moral or immoral for stealing my wallet um i know for for a fact i'm angry because it wasn't morally ideal but was the criminal moral or immoral when he stole my wallet to feed his kids um, well that's a question that further nuance only further nuance and reflection can give you or, or growth as a person you know as we emotionally mature and or mature cognitively and emo- and morally speaking in terms of our moral knowledge as well so that's what I, I wanted to say about that issue cultivating our emotions or refining our emotions absolutely does happen but our doing that does not negate our what the prof calls in in the comments a court our course great original coarse-grained emotions that we had in our immature states about a situation uh, that was not morally ideal or was morally ideal or that sort of thing. So that's sort of my answer to that. And a final note, just as a, a point of caution, you know, so, well, isn't it possible we can go beyond the design specifications of what God designed, originally designed our emotions to be? Why can't we progress? Why can't we evolve um, our emotional capacities to adjudicate directly on emotional versus on moral versus immorality and not just moral idealness versus non-idealness and i would just issue a note of caution if you're going beyond the divine design capacities or the divine design plan so to speak i think that automatically should raise a red flag that you're probably leading to problems that and the fact that well, it's been scientifically proven that we do suck. Our emotions suck at adjudicating on complex moral dilemmas or quandaries that we find ourselves in. They, they just utterly fail. Uh, in fact, heuristics in general, not just emotional heuristics, but just heuristics, period, genuinely, generally fail when it comes to moral hard cases, as Zighetti says, and or complex and nuanced moral dilemmas. They're just not there yet. So, and that goes for the most emotionally mature person in the world. They, they, they're often confounded and proven wrong when they apply their emotions to complex or nuanced moral dilemmas. Um, I think that we should exercise a note of caution and um, even question the fact that it might even be immoral for human beings to apply their emotions to gaining moral knowledge about whether something is truly moral versus immoral. Um, I think if you're a skeptic or an atheist who does that with the Bible, watch out. You're you're sinning when you use your emotions in a way they weren't designed or aren't capable of, of functioning as, and making judgments on that basis. Uh, that's, a, that's a big problem. Stick to what they're originally designed as, just simplistic adjudicators or heuristics about moral idealness versus non-idealness. So, yeah, that's my response to that. Um, But let's get into the next in the next bit, Um, you know, great. So you've outlined your case and given some measure of warrant for the plausibility of your model. Um, Again, I can't absolutely prove that my model is true. I'll just say it fits the facts. It has good explanatory power and scope. And as well, most important to me, is arguing for its plausibility, that this model is plausible, especially if you're a Christian. But that said, okay, you said that more emotional moral heuristics provide us with moral knowledge. Um, so now we need to get in the, the notion about epistemology and warrant. You know, knowledge is defined by Dr. Alvin Plantinga, who I really like to follow, a warranted true belief where Warrant is defined as, you know, that further quality that distinguishes actual knowledge from mere true belief, right? Everyone who's a regular to the show will know that Warrant is defined in in his book. It's it's a belief that is produced by a set of faculties functioning properly, so subject to no dysfunction, within a suitable uh, cognitive or spiritual environment, Uh, in this case, a suitable effective environment, because... Emotions are effective, AFF uh, faculties. Uh, so a suitable, effective environment appropriate for those kinds of faculties where such faculties operate according to a design plan that is successfully aimed at truth, i.e. producing true beliefs. That's the definition of warrant. That's how we know we've got knowledge. So yeah, our, our central thesis um, in terms of providing a plausible Christian proposal is... Um, we have to ask, okay, well, emotions are functioning as these moral heuristics when they're the primary source for warranted moral knowledge. Um, great. Well, how, how, does, how does that notion relate to the concept of warrant, the definition of warrant, as given by Dr. Alvin Plantinga? Well, in the first place, uh, I think it's important to note that, um, in general, heuristics... Um, are known as good sources for warrant Um, you know it's important to note studies have been empirical studies have been done and they've discovered that heuristics in general are indeed reliable indicators of truth in fact uh, this is controversial but in Sigeti mentions that some studies it has been found quote-unquote it has been found that in certain situations heuristics can significantly outperform reflective thinking, more deep introspective or reflective thinking. And there have been uh, specific cases where affective heuristics, emotions in particular serving as heuristics, have likewise been demonstrated to quote-unquote serve one well in being reliable indicators of truth. Um, Some have even argued that emotions are quote-unquote statistically more likely to be correct than evaluative beliefs. Now that that statement, I tried to check into that, and that turns out to be unsubstantiated. But that that is a quote that Siegetti gives, and there there are some claims about about this that some people say emotional heuristics are in certain cases are statistically more likely to be correct than actual evaluative beliefs formed through proper reflection and that sort of thing. But yeah, it it. it could depend on what you're talking about right so i think that the the statistics that zighetti is talking about things like oh you have a a gut feeling that something's wrong with this guy um but you you talk yourself well no maybe he's just a weirdo or he's you know he's he's following too closely like we talk ourselves out like if some guy is following some girl home in the middle of the night and walking really close and acting weird and sketchy you have that gut feeling this guy's up to no good. But you talk yourself out of it. No, 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 this can't be happening. I think that's that's more what they're talking Ziggeti is talking about. That kind of thing is where emotions outperform our evaluative beliefs in those contexts. But definitely not in in significant contexts um or reflecting on you know deep truths and certainly not in the case of complex moral dilemmas and that sort of thing. yeah i mean the, the case the, pl- the case for plausibility of, of thinking that emotions serving as moral heuristics uh as the primary source for moral knowledge given that god designed them absolutely all the elements would be easily rather easily fulfilled at least at face value i mean um would they be designed uh to produce true beliefs yes because moral knowledge is important god wants us to have it um you know that he would be an intelligent designer he would design them properly so that they're successfully aimed towards producing true beliefs and um yeah he would take make sure that the, the environment is suitable for them to work in that respect and yeah he, he would also Ensure that the third element of, of warrant is there as well, that they're not subject to any kind of dysfunction uh, outside of any effects from a, a free will choice, uh, such as choosing to sin and destroy all of our faculties and causing them to be infected with the sin disease. Um, but yeah, that. In terms of warrant there are some significant objections that need to be addressed in turn in relation to mo- emotions and the first one we kind of hinted at towards the beginning is the appeal to the emotion objection I mean appealing to emotion is a logical fallacy you are illogical if you use your emotions as a reason to think that something's true so this is a huge problem you cannot be warranted if, you're, if an emotion is a reason for you to say, I know that this is not morally ideal or this is morally ideal or something like that, you know, they're often subject to malfunction and everything like this. So in the first place, the appeal to the emotion objection is an overstatement by logicians. So it's definitely true. I mean, it's proved emotions are garbage. They, they fail time and time again. They, you know, they get in the way most of the time. This is why... I, have utter, I used to have utter disrespect totally for anyone that just appealed to them in any way. Um, again, typically skeptics or atheists just giving emotional objections to the rather persuasive evidence for God or the truth of Christianity that I've been presenting. Um, and all they do is just appeal to their emotions. Oh, that's repugnant. Uh, no one cares, buddy. No one cares. Um, what, you, what you feel, that's irrelevant. Well, as I said, I've modified since those days a bit. I've realized, well, I I was right, but I went too far because appealing to emotions is only a fallacy depending on what the context is that we're talking about. So in in the, for example, emotions do serve as reasons in certain contexts. For example, uh, making a conclusion to move and take a new job and move out to New York City or something like that, as opposed to Toronto. Well, my emotions are relevant reasons in this case. How would I emotionally feel? Would I become depressed if I was in New York all by myself and I didn't have friends or family around me and stuff like that? Uh, Whereas staying home in Toronto, I I have people I know and can relate to and stuff like that. I'd be much happier. Well, in that case, you do want to appeal to emotions. Emotions are a relevant reason to appeal to in an argument in that case. So there are times when appealing to emotion is rational and logical to do. So we, we do have to have that qualification. And if emotions are designed by God to speak and provide us with moral, not limited moral knowledge, then yeah, it's, it's proper to appeal to them. However, I, I think that the appeal to the emotion charge comes up because of the malfunctioning that, I mean, nine times out of eight or nine times out of ten, they seem to be totally useless and give us the exact wrong conclusion, um, according to many logicians, right? So, doctors Diona and Taroni mentioned this and basically we, we have to understand that there are various intersecting motivational states that, that come about and interfere with knowledge uh, or the warrant obtained from emotions, right? So, if, for example, our moods can affect our emotions our, and temperaments and that sort of thing. Sometimes our, our emotions are affected by our character traits. This is why developing a moral, morally virtuous character through virtue ethics is so important. When we're sinful, we have a very sinful character and we, we get pleasure out of evil and stuff like that. Well, this influences our emotions and affects the, their reliability their general reliability in terms of giving us moral knowledge and you can't trust them Uh, you know our sentiment our sentiments our desires the all of these various intersecting states of mind or or our souls have can play a quote unquote distorting effect according to doctors Diona and Taroni who are world's experts in the philosophy of emotions and you know we use their text for our philosophy of emotions class But yeah they have this distorting effect on our emotional life and if we're not careful to ensure that we're not getting any outside influences into our emotions, um, then our emotions are just totally garbage all, all over the place. And I think this is what often happens. Our, our emotional faculties are interfered with by various distorting uh, mental states or effects. And that's why they're notorious for being unreliable in this regard. So. Yeah, you have to watch to make sure and and make a conscious effort that you're not having distorting effects playing a role. And only in that case can you claim to have moral knowledge. Um, And, you know, obviously that uh, can be a problem because especially if, you know, emotions play the role of moral heuristics when you don't have the time or the resources to really sit down and think things through and assess, well, am I having this distorting effect or not? You kind of have to make that split second opinion. Like, uh, is my personality getting in the way here? Am I am I in a bad mood? And this is why I'm just feeling these bad emotions. Yeah, and that can get problematic there. So, and actually, I just kind of realized this. This could be where a role where emotional, moral refinement and development, as as the prof mentioned in section three, this is where that might play a role in, in helping to remove distorting effects based on, a, you know, a dilapidated character traits. Obviously, if you've developed a virtuous moral character and you've developed mature emotions um, and, and expanded a deep emotional capacity that isn't unduly influenced or swayed by interfering states like bad moods and stuff like that. Um, so that might be the role for moral development and refinement in this process, or my theory. It It might help to mitigate against distorting effects uh, and thereby make your emotions more reliable or more likely to be reliable and therefore warranted in uh, adjudicating the moral idealness or non-idealness of a given situation or, or moral dilemma that you're faced with. Um, the next objection I wanted to add is is this. Okay, so Plantinga says it has to be within a suitable environment for our faculties. And remember, this fa- this environment has to be suitable not just for our emotional faculties but for our cognitive faculties and for our moral consciences our moral faculties because they all interrelate and work off each other in a cause and effect relationship right moral conscience gets a value intuition that intersects and causes my emotional faculties to be triggered the emotional faculties trigger my moral conscience my cognitive faculties to focus on the value intuition within my moral conscience and and think it through and immediately my moral conscience in response to my cognitive f- faculties now focusing on the value intuition crystallize into a properly basic belief or an evaluative belief uh moral belief as to the moral idealness or non-idealness of the situation all of these faculties are interconnected with each other so you, i mean that's another possibility for for failure or breakdown if the environment isn't suitable um, for those, for the faculties to do their job. In that case, we don't have warrant. And it's important here uh, to, to remember uh, the difference between a maxi environment, which is the environment that's generally suitable um, for our faculties or macro features, and there are differences in the mini environment, the particular environment that we are in. And whether those are favorable or suitable for specific exercises or instances of using our emotions to come to moral knowledge in that particular situation. So you have to make sure that you, both your maxi environment, but also the specific mini cognitive environment that you're in, is suitable for your emotions in that in that case, right? You know, our, our faculties are suitable for breathing in, in air. Uh, a lot of our faculties uh, are not suitable underwater. Uh, we require special equipment to function down there and stuff like that. Well, it's the same in this case in terms of using our emotions as moral heuristics. We have, we have to say, well, yeah, we're generally designed for... Emotions were generally designed by God to serve in this way. Generally designed to serve in this way. But What about my mini environment? Are my emotions suitable for this mini environment that I'm in, this particular instance of a moral situation. Uh, you know, do I have a car- character trait that's a bias that's interfering here? I, I think uh, confusing the limited scope of, of our emotions within their original suitable environment of the state of integrity with the, you know, their applicability to the fallen m- environment Mini environment that we now occupy, where we're faced with particular moral conflicts and situations, and there are various factors at play that we, as finite human beings, just can't—you know—we we can't come to grapple with in the moment, on, let alone on the basis of emotions. You know, it, sometimes it takes time to think it, think things through, or something like that. Um, so, yeah, we have to be cognizant that we're in a fallen mini environment where our emotions were not designed to deal. With all of the situations that uh, come up, all of the particular moral dilemmas that we face, especially the more complicated types, so yeah, as long as we're cognizant of that and ensuring that yes, we're we're only using our emotions within the limited God-given scope of their applicability and not applying them to make judgments beyond their capacities, um, then yeah, you've got the proper maxi and mini environment for those emotional moral heuristic uh, heuristics faculties of ours um, then you can claim to have warrant but you have to be careful that you're assessing that otherwise you'll be totally unwarranted and you won't have moral knowledge okay so I think at this point I can finally wrap up Uh, we're just about an hour and a half so yeah just putting things in perspective so I started all of this my thesis that's my thesis How emotion, the function or role that emotions have, I think it's been proven plausible, and I think it's uh, been proven true. I've given some reasons to think that it's actually probably true, both biblical warrant and secular warrant uh, in terms of empirical evidence as to why they would be limited to what I call this moral idealness versus non-idealness and not applying to whether something is actually moral or immoral. Uh, obviously that's dependent upon assuming section my section my notion of morality or moral ontology is true uh, and i didn't argue for that in this paper or this podcast but i have argued for that elsewhere and uh and that sort of thing so i think that i'm i'm warranted in holding that that is the nature of moral truths and as well I, i'm warranted in section one from the philosophy of emotions literature in describing those basic features i, I think the features that i use are relatively uncontroversial once you guys understand what it is. So yeah, my, my, my notion of what emotions are when serving as moral heuristics for gaining moral knowledge is eminently plausible and uh, I think probably true um, if you reflect on my reasons there and, and maybe think on them. So yeah, let's bring this around full circle. We started this with the biblical examples of atheists and skeptics from the SNS board so my uh, my prof Mike made a, a note that you know be careful that you're not lumping all atheists and skeptics in the same same batch by saying they just react emotionally he's absolutely right obviously he I think he's one one of those himself and that sort of thing so I'm, I'm just being a little bit uh, playful in lumping in atheists and skeptics they are all emotional and that sort of thing I'm envisioning some of my prior talks on the SNS boards with many of the skeptics who uh, have spoken out against my, my notion of defending the Bible, biblical accounts of the conquests with Joshua or Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son. So that, that's where that's coming from. Don't take offense to that. But yeah, coming back to those biblical examples, I think this is my thesis explains why all those atheists and skeptics from the SNS or Skeptics and Seekers boards, they were having emotional reaction and and they actually have I now believe they actually had a valid insight they were recognizing that these situations in the biblical stories where people God is ordering people to get killed uh, and or you know in the case of Abraham people are willing to kill if a morally perfect God commands us to um, and, and again get into the just I get into the justification for that ethically in other shows but, Aside from that, we, we have emotion, emotional response. This is not right. Something's wrong here. People are dying. I don't like that. That, that fills me with anger. God is, is commanding people to lose their lives. And they're, they're right. They actually have knowledge, I think, that they're recognizing that situation is not morally ideal. So does God. God feels the same. He, he's angry. He's sad. He's ver- He repents. He, he's grieved by the fact that he has to kill these people. He's in a situation in a fallen world where he has no choice. And the lesser of two evils is to kill human beings to accomplish his purposes. We're right to feel angry and indignant about that. God himself in the Bible is said to feel the same way because we're not upholding the principle of life preservation, but you know what? Your emotions don't tell you whether or not there is a morally justified exemption to that principle, and that's where you fall apart logically, um, because there is such, and provably such, uh, or at the very least, it's equally possible. No skeptic has been able to prove that it's improbable that God would have a morally sufficient reason for ordering. A morally perfect God would have a sufficient, morally sufficient reason. For exempting that the moral principle of life preservation in those particular contexts for the greater good. So yeah, I think that the skeptic can claim to have moral knowledge. They can claim to know that these are not morally ideal. Joshua and the Israelites slaughtering the Canaanites, not morally ideal. A world where God has to order a father to be willing to sacrifice his own son, his only son and this is totally outside of context you know some some biblical scholars say that god abraham knew that god wasn't ordering that and there's indications in the text that god was in the first place in the ancient hebrew begging you know abraham please i beg you do this for me kill your only son and there's hints that he was hinting to abraham that he would resurrect isaac afterwards immediately afterwards so that the death would be of no effect it's like a video game you die and you get your next life um but outside of that let's let's take it at face value the way the atheists and skeptics do and pretend no abraham was really really willing to kill this guy kill his only son and that was it uh he'd be dead uh until the general resurrection at the end of ta- end of history yeah we we have moral knowledge that's not morally ideal we shouldn't have to do that god shouldn't have to do that but he's forced to be in this to deal with us in this fallen world that we as human beings have all chosen to be sinful and and you know create these complicated moral dilemma situations where two or more moral principles conflict with each other and the lesser of two evils has to be chosen and or the greater of two goods has to be chosen you know we, we can't live in this unqualified moral absolutism that Immanuel Kant wants us to, not in this fallen world. Um, so I, I, yeah, that this is where I've changed. I, I no longer totally dismiss the skeptics from the atheists and skeptics' emotions and their moral knowledge in saying something's wrong here, this isn't right. Uh, absolutely, yes, your emotions are giving you moral knowledge that the moral ideal uh, sorry that these situations are not morally ideal but you know what you don't have any right to pronounce on whether it's actually moral or immoral whether abraham did that or whether it's moral or immoral that the israelites slaughtered the canaanites because you are not you only have you're not dealing logically with the question of, is an actual violation taking place of a moral, of the moral principle of life preservation? Or perhaps, is there a morally justified exemption of that moral principle of life preservation? Appealing to your emotions, you'll never be able to adjudicate on that matter. You need something more. You need what I do. Logical, thorough, logical reasoning and critical thinking. And then you'll see that absolutely not. Skeptics can't prove that there was a violation here. They can't prove on a balance of probabilities. uh, Given my Molinistic Defeater and and the um, argumentation I gave in the shows with David Smalley and and that when I've done the Abraham Test on on other shows, you can't meet your burden of proof. You can't prove that it's probably immoral, that there's probably a violation versus just the mere exemption of that moral principle. so yeah this is where the skeptics fall apart and they're behaving immorally in overextending their emotions uh, to make judgments that they're just not fit or designed to to foster or to um, induce within us the, these kinds of judgments you know stick to what they're designed to do they, they can just tell you is this morally ideal or not there i will grant it to you you've got moral knowledge the second you go beyond that and try to say well no those biblical accounts are immoral immoral and and your only basis is emotion just pure appeal appealing to your emotions then you've crossed the line in my opinion so yeah uh that's that's it that's my hypothesis in a nutshell i hope you guys enjoyed that if i know that probably sarah and tara are interested in the emotions question at least i hope you guys are because you guys have gone after me quite a lot about about that based on my previous treatment of just dismissing your emotion your emotional reactions to my answer on these types of issues um but yeah and, and hopefully you found some kind of merit you've seen that i've, I've changed uh, i haven't totally abandoned my previous view i i don't think that you're right uh based on your emotions that you're right in saying the bible's immoral or that i'm immoral for the answer i give but I do think that you're right to claim you have actual moral knowledge—that um, the moral that things are not morally ideal. My answers and you know the biblical accounts are not morally ideal, and you actually have moral knowledge on that front. So that's a change for me there. Uh, it's not a total dismissal. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. Um, as I said, uh, I'll be posting up old SNS shows for the next week or two, uh, and then in early February scheduled to do a new show on eschatology with david russell and a panel of, of other christians and that sort of thing so look look out for that so all right take care everyone bye